0: Um, I wanted to just take a moment to introduce Matt and Ann. It's a great joy for me to have them here to share with you. I have known of Matt and Ann much longer than I have known them. Um, They graduated from seminary and were ordained just a couple of years before me, which means that they went through all the fights first, and so they found out where all the pitfalls were and the low hanging vines and they got a lot of the arrows that I then didn't have to get. So I was always very grateful to them and inspired by their steadfastness and leadership and um, grateful to get to know them as actual people rather than names on the internet. Um, And I'm so excited to share that, not share them, but to have them share with you. Um, just a word about Anne, who's p- 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 taking the first slot tonight. Um, I have spent my life reading great writing and trying in vain to produce it. And Anne is a great writer. And I would recommend that you find her writing wherever you can and avail yourself of it. She is hysterically funny and wise and always insightful. And I know that she's going to share some of that with you tonight. And as you may know, if you've been at this church for any length of time at all, I have two rules when introducing someone. One of them is to be brief, and the other is to never, ever say without further ado. So, Ann Kennedy. I hope I don't fall off the stage. That's one
1: thing. I don't actually talk very much. I do write a lot, more than you can possibly read, I think in any a good amount of time. So um, because I don't talk as much, I might just look at my page some of the time and pretend that you're not here. But no, I won't do that. Uh, it is an incredible honor to be here. I'm really Uh, grateful that Nick invited us and um, I have felt since I got to be with some of you at a very dicey weekend in 2018 that this was really the congregation of my heart. I feel like I was there when you were born um, in a difficult way, but um, so I can't wait for heaven when we can just be together and I don't have to travel to come here, but anyway. Nick asked us to talk about uh, failure. I think later he softened it to include discouragement and um, those kinds of bad things. But I kind of latched on. We both latched on to the question of failure. And so that's what we're going to talk about relentlessly for the next day and uh, tonight. Uh, It's one of uh, your favorite subjects, I think. Um, I feel like it's a special bond that we have, because I talk about it all the time as well, and um, so I feel like this is good for me to be the person to kick this off. Uh, in a world where success and, or at least not failing so much that, uh, that failure has to be recast as success, wherever possible, um, is such a big deal and especially with social media, um, talking about failure is a good and pleasant way to begin to talk about Jesus. I think it's a missionary subject, and we should be familiar with it and enjoy talking about it together. So I will kick us off. Tonight I'm going to introduce the question of failure and try to put some lines around what we're talking about, and hopefully I'll set Matt up well for tomorrow, Uh, he's going to talk twice and then I'll finish things off in the evening. So what is failure? I think we know the answer to that question in intimate and humiliating ways each of us. It's possible to fail very quietly so that no one but God knows, you and God. But it's also possible to fail spectacularly on national TV and on Twitter. Not to be crass, but I feel like I can just say the name Alec Baldwin, and hopefully you would immediately experience all the varied emotions that come with epic, epic failure. If you don't know what happened to him, just get online. when You go home and see what, ha- what he did or didn't do. Uh, so it's possible to fail like that, but it's also possible to fail even before you open your eyes in the morning, just by not doing uh, what you promised yourself you would do the night before. So I'm not Alec Baldwin, thank you Jesus, but I, I have failed a lot this week. I, um, the first way that I failed was that I, I, kn- I know about myself that I'm getting increasingly forgetful. I just can't keep everything in my head. So I've begun, I've begun to make lists in a psychotic way. And I have multiple copies of every list and I keep them in lots of different places because um, I'm losing my mind. I have six like teenage children and I'm just, I don't have it together. So, and I knew I was gonna be traveling so I, I made a very careful list and I put the things, that you're, when you're supposed to do the things, next to each thing so that it wasn't just you know unorganized or stupid. And, um, and then I, I promised myself that I would keep a hold of this list and that I would look at it as the week went on as I, I was traveling. So I'm sure that you can guess how my week went. Well, what was the first thing that happened to me was that I put the list in my purse couldn't find it again. It's now in shreds at the bottom of my bag. Matt has lost his check card, and uh, my children who are schooling online did not turn in many of their assignments this week and wrote pathetic and tearful messages to their teachers about how their mother doesn't care for them. (laughs) So this week has just been one wretched thing after another, and that's a good description of my life as a whole. I, did, I decide to do things. I decide to do functional things, kind things, good things, healthy things, godly things, wonderful things. And then I don't do them at all. Like not even a little bit. And I feel like an utter and total failure. And so the long, miserable day wears on. What then do I do as a Christian? Do I consider my condition and think... Maybe I shouldn't make so many dumb plans. Maybe I shouldn't have had all these children. No, I don't do that. (laughs) What I do is I get online, because that's what we do. And I get life hack help for myself by scrolling through BuzzFeed articles. Uh, There are millions of people out there prepared to help me to stop failing. So incidentally, I learned recently while surfing the internet um, that Uh, one of the most important ways to stop failing is to stop thinking about what a failure I am. I know, this is so great. Thinking about failure, according to these people, actually brings more failure to you from the universe. The universe apparently can read your thoughts. (laughs) And then it will give you whatever it is that you're thinking about. It can't discern from your thoughts whether you want the thing or not. It just hear, it just perceives the thought and then it gives you that thing. This is called manifesting. And I'm writing about it for something else. So I have to bring it up here. It's brilliant because, get this, not only am I a failure, but I'm bringing ever greater amounts of failure down on my head by admitting that I am a failure. So I just want to put some flesh, that's gonna be a little joke, put some flesh on this concept for you. If you happen to weigh slightly more than the doctor thinks is good for you, which happened to me recently, uh, it's actually doubly your fault. Obviously, you're eating too much and you're not taking enough exercise, but that's not really your problem. Your real problem is that by thinking about your weight at all and being unhappy about it, you are actually I kid you not you are you are thinking fat thoughts according to these manifesting people, and the universe has heard those thoughts and is now making you fatter you could be i, I I can find the articles for you later if you want. don't believe me. You could be eating celery right now with nothing on it, and you would be getting fatter because of the bad, fat thoughts that you've been thinking. So the antidote, besides pressing play on your Joel Osteen affirmation cube, which somebody gave us recently, and Matt plays his daily Joel Osteen man- uh, affirmation every morning when he comes, um, or, or getting online and listening, I like to get online in the morning and listen to Rach Talk, which is the Rachel Hollis' YouTube channel, and she does like four minutes of basically manifesting advice. Or another one that I've come across in Christian circles is to um, the idea of present over perfect, which is basically where you redefine all your failures um, to be counted as successes. Um, and you just change your categories a little bit. You could do all of that, but I'm going to suggest that we crack open the old Bible and see what Jesus has to say about failure. So uh, I think I'm going to be in Luke 16. I didn't write it down. (laughs) Just, you know, it's in there somewhere. I'm pretty sure we're in Luke, and I'm pretty sure it's chapter 16, 16. Okay. So at first glance, the Bible... I think, sharpens rather than alleviates our discomfort. Jesus, you might remember if you've read the whole thing, which I hope you have, uh, concludes a long and difficult sermon in Matthew, um, where he's sitting on the side of a mountain, um, with an admonition that is terrifying. He says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Nothing, in other words, about your interior, emotional, and intellectual landscape, sort of who you are, nothing about that should be disordered. None of your behavior uh, or your actions should ever be wrong. You should never do anything bad at all. None of your attitudes towards other people should be uncharitable. So if you're judging me tonight, that's very bad. <laughs> You should not be impatient, or selfish, or impersonal, or cruel. In fact, you shouldn't consider yourself at all. When you wake up in the morning, instead of despairing, like I do every morning, you should leap up. Thank God for the morning. Successfully make every effort, as St. Paul says to... No, no, I think it's Peter. As St. Peter says... To supplement your faith with virtue, and your uh, virtue with knowledge, and your knowledge with self-control, and your self-control with steadfastness and godliness, and your godliness with brotherly affection, and your brotherly affection with love. In other words, you should worship God all the time, perfectly, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the mere tip of the law. Uh, a law that goes down underneath the ocean like an iceberg. Uh, be like that. And Jesus, if he, were, if he were, I mean, He is here with us spiritually, but if He were here in such a way that we could catch His eye, He would not be winking at us or shrugging like it's no big deal. Uh, there would be no hashtag for this evening which I don't think there is anyway, so that's fine. He would be deadly serious about this question of perfection. And that is not because he's not worried about the things that worry you, your portfolio, the number of your Twitter followers, um, or how well you love yourself, which is really the law of the day. You must love yourself perfectly. He's not worried about any of that. In fact, he's not worried about how well you do by your own measures how clean your house is, how clean your car is, how clean your kitchen is. Maybe I'm not talking about you, maybe I'm talking about myself. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. Um, but that he doesn't care about the measures that you have for yourself, if they're a perfectionist or lackadaisical or whatever, um, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He does. He cares immensely about your eternal soul. He cares about the weight of you, of your person, in eternity. So, to get a grip on what he might think about failure, um, or to help us understand what he thinks about failure, he told a story in the Bible in Luke chapter 16. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I'm going to uh, go through it if you want to look at it, but I'm going to tell it in my own words. Check me later. Um, This little story does not appear in any of the other gospels, and while it has the outward appearance of a parable, a sort of pithy story that's meant to make you really see what something really is, um, some people wonder if this is actually a true story, if this really happened, um, if there really were two people like this who did exist, and that's because one of the people is named. Um, But even if that's true, we can still look at it typologically. These two people are types. And so you should be able to find yourself, as they say, on the spectrum. Uh, So let's let's do this story. Once upon a time, Jesus was locked in combat with the successful people of his day. And these people with whom, as they like to say, he was in dialogue... I feel like that's probably what he was in. Um, those, these people knew that they were very good. And they were so good that they were able to tell other people about their own success. And they were able to give advice to people on their YouTube channels. And they went viral all the time. They kept the law. They measured out their mint and their Sabbath steps. They averted their eyes from any woman. And they prayed in the temple every day. Most of all, these good and successful people who never failed had an outward verification of their own success, their own goodness. One way they knew that they were so good is that they were very rich. In fact, the fact of their economic prosperity was the outward and visible sign of their inward and spiritual blessing from God. In more modern speak, We could say that these rich people had enough faith. That's why they were rich. God or the universe or whoever had seen the goodness of all these people and had given them their desires, which was happiness and a lot of cash, or whatever they had back then. Now, I don't want to get hung up on the question of economic and material prosperity, We have our own modern ways of knowing the relative goodness and virtue of other people. And they aren't the same. Like, I don't think anyone here today would say that Kim Kardashian is a good person. That's not why she's so rich. Um, But we might say that she has hustle. She's able to make something out of nothing. Um, And I think hustle is something that modern people like a lot, They prize or being functional, you're supposed to be functional, you're supposed to adult, or at least make it big on TikTok. These are all ways of being very successful and avoiding failure, so that when there's a final reckoning, you'll know you're okay. So Jesus was wrangling with these well-off, successful people, and to poke them in the eye, he told them this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Not standing over the stove trying to make something coherent out of the wasteland of your fridge full of bad food. He didn't cook for himself. He had lots and lots of people who cooked for him, and they cleaned his house. And the kind of food that he did eat was gorgeous. He ate a banquet every day, like a state dinner at the White House, every single day. And his clothes were tailored for him. They were made for his particular shape, and they were comfortable. uh, And they were uh, made of such splendid material that uh, it would have cost a small kingdom to uh, be able to buy them. In fact, I think probably getting dressed every day took as much time as it did to eat dinner. Uh, So that he, the rich man, would only have a few minutes to worry about getting his work done, of which he had no work. So he has a great life. I think this rich man probably also had a lot of friends because he did have so much money. And those two things often go together. It's funny how many friends you suddenly have when you have a lot of cash. He didn't lack for uh, intentional community, especially as probably the intentional part was on the side of the people who wanted to eat at his dinner table. So, at the gate of the rich man, says Jesus, and I want to just pause and think for a minute about what sort of gate this might be. It would have been it wouldn't have just been a, a gate that just sort of half was there and then there was no fence around it or looked broken down or uninteresting. This would have been a beautiful gate, a a gate that made you want to go through it to see what was on the other side. It would have been made gorgeously, imposing. If you walked by this gate, you would pause for a bit, and when you went away, you would think about it often because it was so interesting and wonderful. At this gate, Jesus says, was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus, not incidentally, means the Lord is my helper, which introduces a curious irony to this uh, narrative. How can you know when someone is being helped by God? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be able to tell if somebody was being helped by God? Wouldn't it look obvious? But also, Doesn't the person who needs God's help, isn't that person necessarily a failure? I think that's what we would say. Shouldn't you not need help, other than scrolling through the internet? Shouldn't you be able to just figure it out just by doing more research? Isn't it bad to be stuck there lying on the ground in the shadow of somebody else's glorious success? Shouldn't you also be wonderful and successful? All the people passing by Lazarus lying there at that gate, rushing around about their own complicated lives, would have known in the depths of their being that God was helping the rich man uh, as a sort of extra gift to say how much he likes and appreciates successful people. And uh, they would not have even known the name of the man lying on the ground at the gate. So it's strange that Lazarus has a name. But every day, another poor but well able-bodied person would have carried him and laid him there at the gate. And that would have been a help to him, but not a satisfying, meaningful kind of help, um, especially since he lay there and Jesus says he was covered in sores. It's actually a medical, technical word, ulcerated. Luke wants you to know that um, the man was, uh, he's giving his medical opinion. He was ulcerated. And it was so bad that there was no care for them. There was really no healing for these sores. But that's not his most pressing need. More than that, he longs to eat what, what falls from the rich man's table. He's hungry. This man lying there is starving. I find, just to maybe lighten the mood, that my own failures come most sharply into focus when I'm hungry. And it's not usually because I lack food. I'm not, I'm not lying on the ground starving to death. It's because I don't know which of the piles of food to eat first. Should I eat this bucket of old, old kimchi in the back of the fridge? but I don't know where we got it. (laughs) Or should I eat this delicious boiled potato with butter lathered on it that we brought home from the chicken barbecue? Um, Should I be healthy and eat the old kimchi? Should I do self-care? Or should I treat myself and eat the potato? What should I do? Hunger illuminates for me and for many people. Much of the soul's malady. Hunger for the people of Israel languishing on the way to the promised land wasn't so much about their physical health, but it showed God and Moses and themselves the condition of their own hearts before God. Did they want to eat what he would give them? Did they want him? Or did they want the stuff, the sumptuous feasting and the leeks of Egypt? Egypt. My grandparents were spectacularly good at trusting God, but they ate very poorly. I, this it does pertain to Lazarus. It, it's going to connect. My grandmother would rush home from teaching 30 kindergartners all day, take a chunk of frozen beef out of the freezer, throw it in a pan. I don't, she didn't probably throw it. She probably put it in the pan with a can of mushrooms, and she would... Stir it around and boil a box of macaroni, and that was called easy hamburger gravy. And it's legendary in my whole family. Everybody loves this food. In fact, I love it. In the poverty of my spirit before God, I loved this food. When I was in boarding school and I wasn't doing very well in my soul, my mother came 500 miles or whatever to take me off campus for a week to stay in the mission guest house to try to put me back together the way you have to do in your mother. And she made, in the middle of Africa, easy hamburger gravy with the canned mushrooms. But also, she found a thing of cream, so it was a little bit better. This is our soul food, is that what it's called? When my grandmother died, my family found that her last prayer journal entry was an often repeated desire in the entry, nobody had ever heard her say it aloud, for a greenhouse in her back garden. But, and she wrote this on the page a few hours before she died, not if it would send leanness into my soul. Being poor in the matter of greenhouses, and poor in the matter of food, and poor in the matter of time, she did not want God to give her something that would make her forget him. As you might expect, this was very irritating to our large family family, On the morning, she died, and we read her journal. For if she had verbalized the desire for a greenhouse to anyone other than God, that person would have brushed out and bought it for her and assembled it and put it in her backyard. Why didn't she say it out loud? Why didn't she go and get it herself? They were saving so much money because of the easy hamburger gravy. (laughs) Anyway bookend that. Lazarus is lying there, desiring, he's longing to be fed with what comes from the rich man's table. For indeed, and this is also strange, he can see the table where the rich man is eating his dinner. Like many of that day, this rich man would arrange his dinner table in a courtyard, partly sheltered, partly al fresco so that people walking by, or people lying on the ground at the gate, would be able to see him there eating his dinner, in the presence of both his friends and his enemies. And there would have been crumbs. In the absence of plates and cutlery, older, stale circles of bread would have been laid uh, on the table to help the business of eating, to act as both plate and spoon and then thrown away, these big stale uh, circles of bread. And then uh, when they were thrown down, wild scavenging dogs would come along and devour them. For the dogs in this story are not fluffy domesticated um, little cute dogs that get pushed around in pet strollers. These dogs are wild and brutal and scavenging. They are the kind of dogs which the scriptures often speak of as a kind of apocalyptic metaphor for the people who are persecuting those whom God loves. Their presence in the story should tell us that something is very wrong with this dinner arrangement. Something's not right. Anyway, these dogs, after eating everything that's fallen down from the table they would go and lick the sores of Lazarus lying there on the ground. Not in a friendly healing way, if that's a thing. I think I read somebody was like, it's fine if a dog licks your open sore, it's better for it. But that's not what the text is saying. It's meant to make you shudder and feel sick, which it does me when I read it. As Jesus pauses to draw breath and Luke sets down his pen to stretch his uh, hand, I think it would be useful for us to pause for just a second also and ask, does Jesus want us to feel very guilty and drop everything to go out and rescue the beggars of the world? Should we even be here tonight in this warm, comfortable room with all this beautiful food? In fact, I once heard a sermon preached about this story, and the preacher said, At the end, as his application, all rich people go to hell. Amen. (laughs) Then we were all supposed to take communion together. But I went outside into the calm, cool night and threw up in my mouth just a little bit. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, the kingdom of God is surprising most of all for the people who find themselves inside it. The kingdom of God is an overturning of what the believer expects. It unmoors, it undoes our own assumptions about how the cosmos works. This story isn't for the unbeliever, it's for us. It should take apart all our own efforts, all our ideas of success, and especially uh, what should happen uh, in the next world, the world that to come. Because that's what we have to look at now. Because, as Jesus tells us, the poor man dies. Because of course he does. He's starving. He's covered in sores. He has no medical care. What else is he going to do? He dies. And he dies in the way that the poor of the world do, unmourned unburied, unnoticed. In fact, it's a relief probably when this man dies because no one has to go and lay him at the gate anymore and no one has to look at him there while they're eating their dinner. His body is thrown somewhere before the next lavish meal. You can't just have poor dead people lying around, it's unhygienic, though it's fine to have the dogs. (laughs) The crowd pressing around Jesus is not surprised that Lazarus dies, and I think probably we're not surprised either. Though his name is a real failure at this point, wouldn't you say, as the story has progressed so far? What a dumb name for such a failure, the one whom the Lord helps. That's where we could stay. Amen. But let's, read, let's go on to the next part. The next part is a shock for the crowd. For when Lazarus dies, the angels come and carry him to Abraham's side. Or really bosom, I like the old word, Abraham's bosom. Probably he's made to stand in honor next to Abraham, that great faithful sinner, who, though he could not see with his own eyes the great consolation of all his hopes, yet he trusted God so much that he was counted as righteous, as good, in spite of his failures and his own disappointments. So Lazarus, the poor man, the poorest of men, stands in glory next to Abraham, the very richest of all the men in the scriptures whose wealth surpassed what we could possibly imagine. And yet remember, when Abraham had visitors come to the door of his tent, he ran on his own feet to kill the fattened calf and to get Sarah to make bread. And then he stood afar off while his visitors ate. He begged them to eat. For though he was rich, he was poor. He had no son. His body had failed him his whole life to produce an heir. And so he was reduced to begging God to give him what he had already been promised. Abraham and Lazarus stand there together, wrapped up in the consolation of a God who, well, can't talk about that yet. There's another death. The rich man also dies. Everybody dies, just so you know. Jesus tells us that this man gets to be buried, but that's all he says. He doesn't even say how he died, which is always the first question I ask. I wanna know, how did he die? What happened? Was it COVID? It was probably COVID. Did he have underlying comorbidities? Because I feel like with that kind of diet, he probably had real big issues. Did he choke on a bone? What kind of life-saving measures were undertaken on his behalf before he died? Did he have a doctor? He probably had a doctor in the house already. And was anyone sad? I mean, I bet some people were fine with him dying, because then all this money would come free. Still, though, I bet the funeral was full up of flowers, a full measure tied together, hung here and there, drooping over the coffin. I bet there were long speeches about what a great guy he was, how many charities he gave to, how much he did for the arts. If anyone remembered about the poor guy always stuck there at the gate, nobody said anything at the funeral. In fact, I bet at the funeral, along with weeping and the, the beautiful burial, I bet some people even said, he's in a better place. That's not true. He's not in a better place. In fact, he's in hell. Jesus says he is in torment. It's too hot. It's so hot, at least, that he wants someone to come and cool his tongue. Having eaten all the delicious and beautiful ices of his life and drunk all the cool and refreshing drinks, now his throat is parched. He is as grumbling as the people in the wilderness when they find out that there's no water. They are ready to go to war against Moses and God on account of their thirst. And whereas before Lazarus lay there watching the rich man eat and drink, now the rich man can look up through some well-appointed heavenly gate, some well-built gate, and he can see Lazarus standing there in honor, they' are next to the founder of the rich man's faith. Because strangely enough, um, seeing his obvious failure to go to a better place, this man now wants mercy. He wants relief for his tongue. but he doesn't want to leave the bad place, which is a great joke. Oh, it's a good place. sorry, that's a great joke. He doesn't want to leave the bad place. He doesn't want eternal relief. And honestly, noticing Lazarus there, how strange is it that the rich man now knows his name? Did he know it before and just not care? Or does he know it now that he's dead? Jesus doesn't tell us. No, the rich man wants Lazarus to leave his place of honor and go to him in hell. And why is that? I would imagine that it is because hell is the consummation of envy with pride. It's a, an unholy marriage of all the covetous and hideous grasping after what we have not been given by God. Because we didn't ask the source of all goodness. We didn't want to know him. We didn't ask. God himself, the person who made you and who would take care of you, will hear you if you cry to him. Though, when contemplating the brief and pathetic life of a man covered in sores, it's easy for us to say that maybe God doesn't really, didn't really care. That's what, um, that's what many Christians break their teeth on, and certainly the, un, the un, non-Christian. Why would God leave Lazarus there so long, covered in his sores? Why didn't he help him sooner? Why did he wait for him to die? I, I can't answer any of those questions because we have to get through the story. I'm just going to leave them hanging and I'm probably not going to answer them tomorrow either. <laughs> Maybe I'll write a book. <sighs> but they're worth thinking about. Even though the rich man is in hell, he wants that once poor, though now consoled and exalted. I think that's the problem. That exalted man to be knocked down out of his spot. He wants him to go back to the gate of hell where he lay for so long. But his desires are not the order of the universe. They are not the order that God establishes forever. And so Abraham tries to explain to this poor rich man that it cannot be so. Lazarus, the one whom God helps, cannot go back to that awful place because nothing can ever separate him from the love of God. Well then, says the rich man, um, uh, who Abraham politely calls him child, which is I think a funny, I think Jesus is being funny. He says send Lazarus to earth to warn my brothers so that they won't come here to this place of torment. Also no, says Abraham. Sorry, can't do that either. He won't do any good, for there is only one way to fail in this life, and that is to fail to hear the voice of Jesus, to shut your eyes and refuse to see him wherever he is, but most especially in the text of scripture. That's the only way to be a failure. It doesn't matter what kind of place you live. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how awesome you are on TikTok or how well you juggle the impossible demands of modern life, it doesn't matter how well you manage your anxiety or don't manage it at all, or your depression, or your diet, or your schedule, or your wellness, or your relationships, or your budget. All of that is so much chaff if you do not know Jesus. Likewise, you can be an absolute mess. You can be incompetent. You can be so incompetent that you win the Incompton game. If you put your trust in the promise of Abraham, which is Jesus himself, then there is nothing that will wrench you out of his grasp until you stand before him in glory. And this should be the mind, the perspective you have when you see the beggar by the way. Do you close your eyes and think, what a failure? Or do you look at your own heart and see the same desperate, wretched condition? That if God did not give you food, and God did not give you water, and God did not give you himself, you would perish forever. And that if he doesn't give you something in this life, it's because you didn't need it. Nothing that you have is worth more than Jesus. Nothing at all. Gracias.